Psalm 91 is one of the most loved psalms in the book of Psalms. I dare say many of you have found comfort in times of trial and pressure from this psalm. I can remember many a time in my ministry heading to a hospital room or to a home where there's been some tragedy. And when we read Scripture, this is often a psalm that is opened and read, and it always brings great comfort. It begins with this affirmation, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, the way I memorized it as a child may be the same way you memorized it as you were growing up. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Most of our modern translations do not say secret place. They, they say shelter like it is here in the ESV. And you know, I, I've been thinking about this all weekend and, and sort of have been wondering why. <laughs> because uh, the Hebrew word that's used here, that's sometimes translated secret place, sometimes shelter, sometimes other things that we'll see in, in a few moments, uh, it, it means a place of secrecy, a place where you are enclosed and secure where nothing evil can find you. It refers to a hiding place. When I was a young father, I would try to play hide-and-seek with my oldest daughter. I think she was three or four at the time. And she would hide somewhere in the house, and I would say, ready or not, here I come. And immediately I would hear this reply from somewhere in the house, I'm in the closet, <laughs> or I'm behind the bed. And I had to tell her, you know, sweetie, I don't think you grasp the seeking part of this game. But hiding is not always a game. Sometimes it's a matter of life and death. Growing up in the Midwest, like many of you, we were thoroughly instructed in where to hide in case of a tornado. Every summer, we had our hiding place in the basement where we would go when we heard the tornado siren. You're supposed to get to the lowest level and get underneath something sturdy and, and be on a certain side of the house and all of that. As a more serious example, recent events in, in the Middle East have reminded me that there are many accounts of Jewish people who went into hiding during World War II in the Nazi-occupied territories where they were being literally hunted and arrested by Hitler's Gestapo. And there were many merciful people who risked their lives, and some of them were executed for it, risked their lives to hide Jewish families. They, were made, uh, they, they made hiding places in their basements and in their attics, and they made false walls to conceal uh, hidden rooms. But the Jews who hid there and those who hid them lived in constant fear that they might be discovered. I think most of us are familiar with the diary of Anne Frank, uh, the girl who hid with her family from the Nazis, or the book by Carrie Ten Boom, which is literally called The Hiding Place. But these hiding places are no guarantee of safety. Tornadoes destroy homes and injure people and claim lives. And most of the stories of, that I've read of the Jewish families were, were uh, stories where they, they ended with the family being discovered and, and taken to concentration camps, and, and many of them did not survive. Because these hiding places are only temporary they cannot guarantee security. The writer of Psalm 91, possibly David, we're not told, knows a thing or two about 
secure places to hide. And we know this because of the terminology of the psalm. In Psalm 91 verse 2, you notice, he uses the word fortress. A fortress is like a little walled city stocked with weapons and supplies and having places of safety where people can flee during an enemy's attack. And down in verse 9, as we'll see, he refers to a dwelling place, which is a general term that could refer to any dwelling, but it implies a place that provides uh, security and safety. And both in verse 2 here and down in verse 9, he uses the word refuge, which is a shelter from danger. But when it comes to his own security, his own safety, the author of this psalm is not trusting in brick and stone and masonry or weaponry or hard-to-find places. Rather, he says, he who dwells in the refuge, the secret place, the hiding place of the Most High, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. In other words, the one who dwells in that secret place will always be under the protection of Almighty God. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. The refuge and the fortress do not merely belong to God. You see what the psalm is saying? The refuge and the fortress are God. So in verse 9 and verse 10 because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. Do you know that God completely controls with His sovereignty the evil that befalls us, and nothing is allowed to get in without His say-so? No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent, your dwelling. Wouldn't it be nice to live with that kind of security, that kind of assurance with all time, and in all times and in all circumstances? Because this is the testimony of every believer who dwells in this hiding place. And very briefly this morning, I just want to ask the question, what does it mean then to dwell in this hiding place, this secret place of safety and security? Well, look how this secret place is described in the Old Testament. In fact, if we go back just to six references to this hiding place leading up to Psalm 91, we basically find most of the ways that the Old Testament uses the single Hebrew word that you see translated in so many different ways. Sometimes secret place, sometimes cover, sometimes hiding place, sometimes shelter. In 1 Samuel 19, which is six occurrences away from Psalm 91 of this word, Jonathan tells David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. That was no news to David. But he says, therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. Jonathan was going to come and, and see David and tell him what the news was. He said, you stay hidden. You stay out of sight. You stay in this secret place. Don't let anybody know you're there. This is a physical secret hiding place. So here, secret place is this physical place of safety. And that's the way this word is used often in the Old Testament. Uh, David probably knew many of these secret places, right? As you follow his life in the hills and the caves of the wilderness where God helped him to hide while he was fleeing from Saul. But in Psalm 1811, the psalmist refers to God's own secret place. 
translated covering. And in the context of Psalm 18, this refers to a place of glory and awe. Darkness is God's secret place. He made his darkness covering, his canopy around him, the thick dark, thick clouds dark with water. This is a very poetic part of the psalm that's trying to say God is so glorious, but he shrouds his glory. In fact, Paul even says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 that he dwells in unapproachable light that no one can see or have seen. We worship the invisible God. God shrouds his glory in the Old Testament. He, he has the secret place. Then in Psalm 27, 5, David says that God will conceal him, hide him under the cover, the hiding place of his tent. In other words, his tabernacle. This, this place that God gave to Moses to create so that God could manifest his presence, manifest his glory, and his people could gather around and be in his presence. And we know this is on David's mind because in the previous verse here in Psalm 27, David expresses his desire to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze at the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. So the covered, uh, the, the, this, this covert darkness of God's glory is manifested in the tabernacle. And David says, I want to dwell there in that hiding place. I want to go into your hiding place, God. The tabernacle then was God's dwelling place in the Old Testament. So in Psalm 31:20, this theme continues. The psalmist can refer to the cover or the secret place of God's presence in which he hides them. In other words, as they're communing with God in the secret place. And that was the prayer then of God's faithful people in the Old Testament. They longed to be in that place where God dwells, hidden away with him. And sometimes you remember the Psalms where David writes and he's out in the wilderness and he says, I just long to be back in your presence. Of course, God could, could pray, uh, David could pray to God wherever he was. He didn't actually have to be in that physical temple or that tabernacle, I should say, to pray to him. But this was representative of God's presence in Israel. So David says in Psalm 32, 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And again in Psalm 61, 4, let me dwell in your tent, your tabernacle forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter, under the hiding place of your wings. You see the progression here? A hiding place can refer to a secret physical place of refuge, which makes it a great metaphor for the presence of God. Because when we are in the very presence of God as God's beloved children, we are in the safest place imaginable. Nothing is going to happen to us outside of this loving and wise control of God. And the Old Testament saints knew that the genuine presence of God was manifested in the tabernacle. So they referred to that as God's secret place. It was a place of prayer. It was a place of truth. It was a place of holiness. And if you're going to have the confidence that God is your hiding place, you have to take refuge under his divine care. You must dwell in his tent. And to dwell in God's tent as a New Testament believer, where God says that we now are the temple of God, right? We are the temple of God with the Holy Spirit indwelling in us means that we can and must Stay in continual fellowship with God. That is our hiding place. 
That time you spend in God's Word, thinking about the words of Scripture, reflecting on truth. You, you know as well as I do, if that habit begins to wane, you will suddenly realize that one day and you will feel very distant from God. Whether you're doing it right now, as we consider God's Word, whether you're, 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 you're thinking about Him right now, as you're communing with Him right now, as we're thinking about God's Word together, or in your private time with the Word, which is so important, and the time you spend responding to God in prayer, which is essential, this is your hiding place. This is your shelter. The place that we meet with God because it's the only way for us to realize God's presence, to realize it. We, we know it mentally, but we don't experience it unless we're communing with God, to be close to Him, to draw near to Him, to enfold ourselves under His wings where we are secure. We need this hiding place. That's what the psalmist has found. You can see this when you pay attention to who, he is, speak, uh, who is speaking in the psalm and who he is speaking to. I want you to look at this for a second. He says at the beginning of the psalm, uh, he says, you know, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. That's his thesis. That's his theme for the psalm. We could even say that's the title of the psalm. But then he offers his personal testimony. This is what I'm doing, he says. I will say to the Lord, my refuge. Or you could, you could uh, translate this, God is my refuge. God, you are my refuge. My fortress, my God in whom I trust. The point is he's personalized this. And even as a believer in Christ, you will never know this hiding place. Listen to me. You will never know this hiding place. It will always be theory in your mind. It will only be theology in your mind. Unless you have that kind of relationship with God where you are spending time with Him regularly saying, God, you are my refuge. You are my fortress. You are my God. You are the one in whom I trust. But as the psalm continues, notice the writer shifts his language to explain to us, the readers, what is in store for us when we make God our hiding place. I'm just going to read through this part. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Pestilence means disease or plague. He will cover you with his pinions, which is another word for wings or feathers. And under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. A shield is a short shield, okay, which we can imagine. A buckler is like a full body length shield. That's who God is. Nothing's going to get past because he's the shield unless he says so. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. That's their retribution. They're just deserts, literally. As God judges the wicked and vindicates the righteous. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. And notice the, the personal testimony comes in again. This is, this is not accidental. 
right? This is not just somebody uh, writing off the cuff here. He reminds us, I know what I'm talking about because he's my refuge. He inserts this. He breaks in to remind us. He says, the Most High who is my refuge, if he's your refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tents. At your tent. Nothing gets in without God say so. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And I think most of you remember these are words that the devil himself quoted to Jesus to try to get him, to try to trick him, deceive him into doing something against the Father's will. So precious are these the words of this psalm, that the devil reaching for something that would be very convincing uses these even against the Son of God, even though it was in vain. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Now, we come to the final three verses of the psalm. The author has shared his personal testimony He's assured his readers, this is what you can expect of God, your hiding place. And listen, it's not like God's going to say, you know, you haven't fellowshiped enough with me. I'm going to let all these things happen to you. No, God often undertakes for us, rescues us, does things for us. When we're, we, we, we look back and realize what he has done. But you know what? We don't understand it. We don't experience it. We're not walking with the Lord. It's, it's not a blessing to us like it could be if we were participating in what God is doing through the reading of his word, through prayer, through living our life for him. But now, something very remarkable takes place in this psalm. God breaks in. God himself speaks to his servants. And he makes these promises. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. These are amazing promises. Whereby God commits himself to us, his children, when we are dwelling in this hiding place. I will deliver. I will protect. I will answer. I will be with him in trouble I will rescue, I will honor, I will satisfy with long life, I will show my salvation. If we have this going on, what else is there that we possibly need? But how do we appropriate, how do we claim, how do we take part in these promises of God? Notice how God describes the person who receives these great and precious promises. Verse 14 at the beginning, a believer who holds fast to God in love. The second part of verse 14, a believer who knows God's name. Verse 15, a believer who calls to God. A believer who holds fast to God in love because there's a deepening relationship with God. A believer who knows God's name, which doesn't mean just knowing the name of God, but knowing about God, knowing his nature, knowing his character, understanding who he is. The more you grow in the Lord and the more you read the word, sometimes you can't even put your, your finger on a chapter and verse 
about what God's will is, but you know the way God is. You know who he is. You know that he would love for this to happen or that he would not be in favor of this because you have a relationship with him. A believer who calls to God because he spends time in prayer. This is the believer who is dwelling in the secret place with God. This is the believer who recognizes the security of God and the rest we can enjoy and the safety and the strength of God. This is a wonderful psalm. It's a wonderful psalm full of promises for us who will seek the Lord to dwell in that hiding place. I hope you have a hiding place. Some time, maybe in the morning, some place you go, not that there's something magical about the time or magical about the place, but we have to set things aside in our life and, and consciously meet with the Lord and find that place of refuge. And as we gather around the table in a few moments, we identify with our Savior who taught his followers to observe these symbols of the cup and the bread that represent his death for our sins that prepared the very way for us to know God in this way. One of the earliest terms for this table gathering comes right out of Paul's letters. It, it was called in the New Testament, among other things, the Eucharistia. They still have the word Eucharist in some religious context. This is what it's called in the New Testament, the Eucharistia, the thanksgiving so I think it's appropriate to approach the table in two ways this morning. One, with a renewed commitment in our hearts to enter that hiding place with God. I wonder if we've, we've grown cold. Have we been going through motions? Or are we genuinely pursuing this relationship with God and realizing that the Almighty's wings are overshadowing us with His strength and goodness at all times? And the second way is this, is to appropriate uh, to approach the table uh, with, with a conscious thanksgiving in our hearts for all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He's delivered us. He protects us. He hears us. He's with us. He rescues us. He honors us. He satisfies us. He saves us. And therefore, it's appropriate for us to say thank you to our God. And I wonder if we could bow together for a few moments in silent prayer as we always do before we gather around the table. And let's confess if there's any coldness, any lack of drawing near, and then spend a few moments thanking the Lord for what He has done for us, thanking Him for holding fast to us even if we have not held fast to Him at times. And in so doing, let's come together as one body, gathering around this table to observe the bread and the cup, thanking our Lord for all that he has done for us. Let's have some silent prayer together. In a few moments, I'll ask the deacons to come forward.